Okay, we'll get started. <clears throat> There's uh, a good amount more questions than last time, so I'm going to, in the interest of brevity, because um, I do tend to go on and on and, and get long, uh, I'm going to set myself a couple ground rules. Um, I'm going to be a little bit shorter with the questions, but I'm going to try to answer them, you know, the best. I don't want to short shift the questions. And uh, I'm going to definitely cut it out by 10 after. Um, or less, so. Dear Bhante, can you repeat where in the suttas the discussion between Venerable Moggallana and the Buddha is regarding sloth and torpor? Oh, man. I, th I think it was Anguttara Nikaya. Find me after. Um, the retreat, and I'll get you guys. It, it's right on my sheet, but I don't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately. Ah, dear Bonte, what is the water simile for the last hindrance? I was thinking to myself after, I was like, I forgot to say the last hindrance simile. <laughs> you know, j just uh, something to add. Um, one of the things that I, I didn't mention when, when the Buddha is talking about after each simile or after each hindrance, you know, that they won't know the, you know, the, the good for themselves, the good for others, etc., etc. One of the last things that they say is things that have been remembered will not be able to be brought up. So it's like you, you know, you have trouble with your recollection. And I was, uh, I was thinking about after the talk this afternoon, the irony of that, because this, during this, uh, this past talk, I noticed myself going blank a lot. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? <laughs> so that reminded me of the, the hindrances that I've been dealing with. So the, uh, and again, the, um, the word sati, part of the definition is mindfulness, but the other part is recollection. So that's another way of showing how the hindrances hinder your mindfulness. But the, <clears throat> the simile for the last hindrance is turgid water with mud. So it's like muddy water. Yeah. Bonte, what is it like to go on an alms round? What was it like your first time? Um, this is something, unfortunately, that rarely happens in modern times. I mean, you know, there's, I know like a, a Thai forest place where they go on alms round every day, but it's like, you know, somebody bought a house close to the monastery and they just go to the guy's house and get the prepared food and come back. It's not really like alms round, like, like how we think. And, you know, like people, when you get, have these idealized things of monks, I'm like, I want to go on Tudong and I can't wait to have an alms round and all these things like that. In the West, that's basically non-existent. Um, the closest thing that I did have to that is uh, January and February, we have a seclusion here. Um, and during that time, basically each person gets a month off. And, you know, I mean, if you want to go home, if you want to spend the whole month on the internet, if you want to spend the whole month in seclusion, whatever you want to do, there's no like rules. But one of the things I really wanted to do was to spend that whole, those of you who know me, you know, I mean, I'm on Facebook, I'm connected to the internet. Like, like Bonte said, 
you know, this is the, you know, recording and all these kind of things. So to be able to do that one time a year where I can just literally be totally disconnected for a month is, is awesome. And so the, not the, this past seclusion, but two seclusions ago, I was able to do that. I stayed up in Chanda House, where the ladies might know Chanda House. And I was basically for the whole month, I was by myself on the other side of the monastery. And every day I set myself up my bowl and I came down and I didn't talk to anybody and I just put the food in the bowl and I went back. So that was the, that's the only Pindabot that I've had. And it was great. It was like, I, I mean, it was snowing. So I definitely knew I wasn't in like Thailand or India or anything like that. But, but actually that made it better because I love snow. But um, so yeah, no, I mean, that's something, you know, that pretty, I, I would say most people who want to become monks, they think about that because it's part of, you know, you see videos of the monks and they're all like walking with their arms, bowls and all that stuff. All the ideals that you think, and then once you become a monk, you realize most of those ideals are like, oh yeah, this is reality, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, Bhante, I think sensual desire is the most difficult to be, or sexual desire is the most difficult to be abandoned. How to deal with it to practice sama samadhi in our lay life? Well, the way I look at these kind of things is think about, I, I, I really, what helps me is to think about it through an evolutionary perspective. Of course, sexual desire, other than eating, the, the, one of the biggest drives for, for an animal, for a human being, is to reproduce, to propagate the species, right? So you're going against something that's ancient. And I mean, like a billion years old or more, way before there were humans. You're literally going against the stream in that regard. So of course it's gonna be hard. Um, and one of the things that I, I think people have trouble with, you know, and I have to remind myself this too. It's like, you know, okay, I'm a monk. But you don't, you don't get rid of this, you know, sexual desire until I'm pretty sure it's, it's non-returner. So, you know, like I'm thinking to myself, well, I have a long way to go for that. And, you know, I'm going to have these things with me that whole time. And it's okay. You know, so I just, so people, you, you don't want to be like, you know, you think of what I, what I think growing up Catholic and, and knowing the history, like you have like the guys in the Middle Ages, like they have like a, a thought and then they have to whip themselves and all these kind of things. That's not how it should be. So, you know, just because if you have thoughts, if you have sexual desire, it's okay. That's normal. That's part of being, you know, this being. That's part of, you know, being alive, unfortunately. <laughs> No, but, um, you know, if you have a body, this is what you have. If you have a body, you have old age, sickness, death, all, all these desires. That's just the way it is. So the first thing is don't be critical about, onto yourself, overly critical and judgmental and harmful. You have to, the best thing to do is to examine it, to really see that, to really, you know, understand how that, comes up in your mind and your body. What does it do to your body? What does it do to your mind? You know, I mean, there's, <clears throat> it's not as bad as it used to be, but I can remember be, first being here and like retreatants would come up and like there would be like a, a really beautiful woman and her boyfriend and I'd notice myself just so I'm not looking at the woman, I'd be just focused right on the boyfriend and I'm thinking to myself, well, that's kind of, 
bad because it looks like, you know, I'm like avoiding this person and stuff like that. You know, so that's just kind of, you know, figuring out how to, how to work with your desires, but also, you know, interact with people and these kind of things. So, and that happens, like now, if that comes up, you know, oh, I can see that happens. And, and then because of those previous, you know, those previous uh, situations, I can think, okay, this has arisen. And I also want to make sure I'm talking to this person as a person, not because of my desires and all these kind of things. So I put that in and then I can talk to them. So it's like every time you practice little by little by little, you get better at it. And so understand that it's part of you. Understand that, you know, you're not going to get rid of it anytime soon. Um, so you, it's, you work with it, you understand it. The more you understand, like Bonte, Bonte says it, and I, I'll always say this because I've seen it in my own experience. Anytime you try to fight something, especially with your mind, it fights back. The way you, the way things, what happens is as you, when you understand, when you gain insight, when you see something, naturally you just, it just fades away, right? So that's how you overcome these things. Not by trying to fight it, but by trying to understand it and see it. And when you see this, you know, when you see it with insight and you see the gratification, the danger, and the escape, then naturally it just falls away. And I, I mean, it, it's funny, like there's one of the stories that I, I love that makes me laugh is Ajahn Chah talking about him, him you know, fighting. Ajahn Chah is a very famous Thai forest mo uh, monastic. And one time he's talking about like him fighting a sexual desire and how he was like actually attracted to the monkeys in the trees. And I mean, this, that's how strong this is. That, you know, and, and it takes, uh, I'm glad people like him, you know, can be honest and open about that because then that makes me feel so bad. We all think that we have all these horrible thoughts and all these things in our minds like, oh, and it's just us. That's total BS. It's like all of us, all these thoughts, you know. So we always think that, you know, we're so bad, but everybody has these thoughts. Everybody has that. Dear Bhante, what makes something skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome, meritorious and unmeritorious? Thank you. Um, so the word, the Pali word we're working with here is kusala and akusala. And kusala is, is, you can translate it as wholesome or skillful. Personally, coming from the Catholic thing, and, and it's just, the, the wholesome and unwholesome thing just doesn't, click with me. That's why I like to say skillful and unskillful because what, what it is is it, wholesome and unwholesome almost feels more like, you know, like a, not like a judgment, but skillful to me is like, oh yes, you know, okay, I'm, I'm practicing, I'm trying to get better and I'm doing something and, and that was a skillful thing. You know, it's like you're trying to, you know, um, make a carve something or, or create something and you're, you know, you're practicing it and you're getting better at your skills and you become skillful and you do a skillful act. And so it's the same thing with here. When you, what is skillful and wholesome is that which is beneficial to yourself and others. 
What is unskillful and unwholesome is that which is harmful to yourself and others. So we're always trying to perfect our sila. We're always trying to live and live in the world in a way that is going to be the, the most um, helpful, the most beneficial to ourselves and others. And we don't, we don't have the wisdom to know that right off the bat. So we screw up. We do, we do something and we think, okay, well, this is the best. You know, I'm doing something skillful. And then afterwards you realize, no, that wasn't so skillful. Or, you know, I thought I was doing this and then, well, you know, this happened. Okay, maybe I'm not going to do that again. So it's just gradually really coming to understand and really little by little, um, you know, seeing with your own experience what's the best way to live and the best, the, the, the most skillful way in that regard. What is merit? Merit is, is simply doing something that's skillful. It's simply doing something like th there's, there's the, the Buddha says there's three bases for meritorious activities. He says that there's dana, which is generosity. There's sila, which is living by virtuous principles. And then there is bhavana, which is the mental cultivation. So, you know, merit is doing these things. You know, most people, when they think of merit, they think of you know, offering food to the monks or doing these kind of things. Um, that's part of merit, but that's not all of merit. You know, merit is everything that you're doing that you're trying to live skillfully. All your skillful actions, you know, the, um, and Buddha, sometimes he goes into, like, when he, he's talking about metta, right? And he'll, talk, and he'll say something like, greater than somebody who donated thousands of jars of food is somebody for the length of a finger snap practices metta, right? So it's all of it. Merit is something that you develop as you are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. Body, speech, mind, all of your actions and what you do. Dear Bhante, are monks allowed to learn, play, and enjoy musical instruments? Um, no. Uh, no, that's not the, that, that's actually one of the, one of the, um, it's not a major rule. It's not like you could be kicked out if you become, you know, if you do this as a monk, but it is one of the rules that, you know, we avoid doing, like, playing games and, and dancing and, and, you know, all these kind of things. Um, like there's just a story of like these six monks, this group of six, and they're hanging out with lay people and they're dancing, they're playing, the, and they all have like a list of all these games and, and we don't know what exactly they were. But, and, and then all of a sudden like people come by, it's like, how can these, you know, how can these monastics do this and play with lay people and, and you know, enjoy the five chords of sensual pleasure and all these kind of things. And so, you know, it's just something that is seen as, maybe not necessarily unwholesome, but unmonkly, and something that is trying, to, something that is allowing you to, in a way, escape your mind, you know, uh, you know uh, use it as a, as a pleasurable experience to, uh, as a coping mechanism for unpleasurable experiences. So, 
Yeah, no, there, there, there is, there's, there's a, a, a Zen reverend, Reverend Kusla, I think, he plays the harmonica, but he, even he admits, yeah, it's against the rules, but he feels it's a skillful thing, um, and, he help, and he, like, teaches inner-city kids with it and stuff like that. So, but yeah, it's not something we normally do. Read and appreciate works of fiction, such as Sherlock Holmes. <clears throat> this, is, this is an interesting one. Technically, I don't believe there is a rule against reading fiction. As a matter of fact, the first time I heard about this, there's a, um, I was reading an interview with Tanis Arabiku, and um, he admitted that he read Harry Potter. And I was like, really? Monks can read Harry Potter? And, um, you know, and, and so basically what he, what he had said was that um, yeah, as long as I, you know, make sure that it's not something that's affecting my practice, yeah, it's okay. So, um, but, so that's, you know, that's basically it. Now, you know, watching movies and stuff like that, that would fall under that, the entertainment rule. Um, but uh, reading, I, I don't know. Now, you, we can watch, like, documentaries and things like that. Um, you know, we can watch history stuff. Like, you know, I mean, we, there's monks that I know that have, like, Bonte has his Ph.D., you know, in philosophy. He had to learn German and, you know, do all these kind of things. So, so monks do do non-Dhamma activities, um, you know, especially, like, I know four or five monks that have their Ph.D.s. So they had to learn and watch things and do all kinds of stuff. Um, but... Uh, uh, and the next one was TVs, movies, and sports, etc. If you go to some, if you go to some, um, what you call, it? if you go to some city monasteries, you might see a TV, but you won't see one here. As a matter of fact, there's some funny stories of people trying to leave TVs here and Bonte's reaction. And it's not, <laughs> he he doesn't like any TVs here, not at all. Um, Create works of art such as watercolors, landscapes, or abstract painting. That again, that you know, some monks do that kind of stuff. I mean, I, you know, the, these are all very, you know, it's it's it depends on the interpretation, it depends on the tradition, it depends on you know what the abbot thinks and stuff like that. Um, you know, drawing. Uh, there's no direct rule, but. So uh, hug their mothers and say, I love you. Thank you. Um, interestingly enough, uh, hugging your mother or any person in a sisterly way is technically a breach of the rule. But most Westerners, you know, out of compassion, I'm not going to not hug my mom. Well, how should I say, I'll let her hug me. I think that's a better. <laughs> but no, no, I mean, there's like, you know, there's like, in some of the commentaries, there's, there's something like um, one should not touch their mother even if they were drowning in the, in the, you know, the, the river and all these kind of things. And it's like, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, so there is such a thing as, as breaking the rules out of compassion. And for me, that's one of those things. Like some people take the rule of, it's common in Buddhist countries that they think that you like a woman can't shake my hand there's no rule against that whatsoever none at all so in the west even Banteji, you know everybody we the all even sri lanka monks the thai monks that have come here can shake hands it's okay but this is a something that has developed over a long period of time and it's an interpretation of a rule that this is 
you know, how it's supposed to be. But um, I'm not going to, out of compassion for being in the West, if somebody doesn't know anything about Buddhism, they come to shake my hand, and I could be like, you can't touch me. You know, that's, that's silly. So if somebody, I'm not going to go around shaking, you know, putting my own hand out, but if somebody shakes my hand, then I'll shake it, no problem. Dear Bonte, how to meditate if we have ringing ear tinnitus? That's an interesting question. I've heard that, I've heard that um, asked a couple times. Um, <clears throat> you know, really, that's something that when, when people have something that's consistent, like a consistent pain, a consistent issue like that, the, the best thing is to take that as an object of meditation. Like Bhikkhu Bodhi, if you know Bhikkhu Bodhi, he has these like debilitating I don't even think like migraines, I think migraines is like a mind, like understating it. Like he has these debilitating things that literally, I've tried to meet him five times and every time, whether it's a retreat or whatever, he's sick in his, his mind. So he has this thing that affects him all the time. And, and there's one talk and he talks about how that, how he's used that as, you know, to develop his practice and these kind of things. So, you know, just like, I would say, just like how Bonte talks about you know, when Bhante Sila was talking about the pain, you, what, I, what I say is you bore into that. Bore into that. What is that sound? What is it? Where is it coming from? What is it like? Can you see it? Can you see? Does it sound like it's one continuous thing, that it's not changing? Can you see that it's changing? Can you really come to know that? If you come to know that, then you can, and you understand it, then there's less agitation, less aversion, and it's going to, you know, it's going to, right now you probably, you know, probably it, it, you feel like it, you know, affects your meditation or hurts your meditation and all that stuff. This is where you can use your, basically, the, a phrase I like to say is make your, your greatest weakness into your greatest asset, right? So this is part of your body, you know, part of your, you know, part of your body, part of past actions, part of whatever. Examine it. Use it. Um, use what you can. Uh, I noticed that uh, my tongue is uh, often applying pressure to the roof of my mouth. Why is this happening? I know I'm supposed to apply a tip of my tongue gently. I find myself having to correct this over and over again. That's common. I have, I have the same issue. Actually, a lot of times what I notice for myself is like I'll be clenching my teeth. I don't know why. It's just something that is, you know, part of as I'm meditating. So when I notice that, I just, you know, unclench my teeth. So you just notice that your tongue, you know, is applying. If you notice your tongue is, is applying too much pressure, that's, you know, your awareness is going to that. Simply just, you know, lessen the pressure. Go back to your breath. You know, th this is... Um, it, it's, it's a very good thing. Um, I only started doing that probably about maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And I, I, someone who has lots of allergies and lots of, I'm always like mucus and phlegm and all this kind of stuff. Once I started doing that, it helped a lot because putting the, the tongue at the back of the, the upper teeth is, you know, going to help. It's, you're like planting your tongue there and there's going to be less mucus and saliva made and all that kind of stuff. So that's actually a good thing to do. Um, but yeah, you just correct it, keep correcting it. I, I, I don't know, 
I mean, I, I don't know any other uh, way that you would fix it. Um, I don't think you need to go to a doctor for it or anything like that. So I don't. <laughs> I think it's a mental thing. Could you please say something about how wholesome desires are recognized and distinguished from unwholesome desires? What is the source of wholesome desires? So, I mean, that's basically, uh, it's basically, I've already kind of talked about this with the, um, the skillful and the unskillful. You know, this is, you recognize it by seeing the danger in it. Like the, one thing I didn't mention is going back to that sutta with the, the, the two kinds of thought. When the Buddha says, I notice that this thought leads to my harm, to the harm of others, etc. And he said, then, the next thing he says, then a thought of metta came to me, a thought of letting go, a thought of compassion. And I saw that I could think this thought for a night and a day, and it would not harm me. Right? So you can know, I mean, you just see, like this, you just watch where this thought is going to lead you. Is it going to build up the hindrances in your mind? Is it going to keep building up? Is it, there's, there's two things that uh, the Buddha talks about in terms of the, the word is man, mana, which is to conceive. Right? So you're conceiving, you're imagining you know, things in your mind. You're creating thoughts and, and, and narratives and all these things. And then once that's in your mind, then the next step is papancha, which is to you're continually propagating it over and over and over again. And so you, you observe that and you see, is this harming me or is this helping me? And then you'll know, you can know for yourself through your own experience. That's, <clears throat> that's the practice. So nobody can tell you that this is skillful or unskillful. You have to see it with your own, you know, with your own experience. What is the source of wholesome desires? The source of wholesome desire is previous comma. Like you've set the groundwork, right? You've set the groundwork. You've done something and it's skillful and you see, oh, that's good. And so then, you know, later on, oh, the desire arises. I should do this. Okay? So you're, so you can't, there is such a thing as wholesome, skillful desire. And the more you practice this, the more you follow this noble eightfold path, the more momentum gets behind that wholesome desire and the less momentum behind the unwholesome desires until there's no desire left whatsoever. There is such a thing as wholesome craving, wholesome desire. There's, there's a sutta, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, I'm not sure which one, um, but Ananda has asked this question, and he says, is there such a thing basically as, as wholesome craving, as wholesome desire? And he says, yes, the craving that puts an end to all craving. So there is such a thing as using this skillful desire to you know, propel yourself down the path. You have to, you have to set aspirations and have these desires or else you're not gonna wanna put in the energy and the effort to, to bother doing it. Are there wholesome aversions and what are their root? Oh, that's a really good question. Are there wholesome aversions? I mean, I guess I, w I would say that it's just like the skillful, the, the, uh, you know, the craving that leads to the ending of craving. Yeah, aversion to doing bad deeds. 
aversion to doing unskillful things. The Buddha, one of the things when I talk about right effort, the, a funny sutta that I found, is that the, Buddha only, the Buddha only advocates being lazy in one time. And, and the wording is, in a badly expounded Dhamma and discipline. What that means is, if somebody's telling you, go out and kill people and do bad things and, and, and follow your desires and all that stuff, you can be lazy for that. So that's it. That is, you know, if, if the aversion is to, to avoiding harming yourself and others, then you can use that. What are the differences among the defilements, fetters, taints, etc., etc.? You know, that's an interesting one because, I'm, in all honesty, I don't know if I can really give a good detailed difference because it's not so clear-cut in the suttas that, I, that I've seen. It, it really isn't. It's at least not to my, my skill level and understanding. I mean, I, I took, when, I, when I saw that thing, like Bhante Ji had the thing up there, like the levels, I was like, oh, wow, I've never thought of it that way. So, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, I don't know if I can really give a, you know, but the, hmm, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, if I try that, I'll probably botch it, so. <laughs> Dear Bhante, is there a method I can, way to approach the suttas. Example, the middle length first or the long discourses next, uh, etc. And understand the reasons for the many repeats in the suttas. Okay. Um, yeah, it depends on where you're at. Like if you're just really in the beginning, there's a, how I started, I started on access to insight. You know, there's, there's two great websites, access to insight.org, and now there's suttacentral.net. And years ago, when I was, I didn't know much about the suttas, I was just getting into it, I'd go to access to insight, and they have a great thing there. It's called random sutta. So if you don't know where you go, and you're like, it, it took me, man, I've been reading and studying the suttas now probably 10 years, close to 10 years. I mean, it took me really until only about three, four years ago for me to actually have in my, my mind an understanding of the framework of, how the, of the suttas. So it's, I mean, it's just, it's just the, the Nikayas, which are the oldest, which is what we tend to teach here. Just those are about 5,000 pages. I'm about 4,500 pages into that. I haven't finished them just yet, but just those are 5,000 pages. That's not even most of what's in Theravada, let alone all the other, um, the, you know, the other traditions. So I would suggest really, you know, cherry picking it, just, to, you know, getting into, so I would click on, you know, random suda and I'd read it and I'd have no idea what the suda was saying. I'd just click it again and just, you know, just gradually checking out the suttas, understanding, you know, developing my understanding of that, listening to different monastics online, um, you know, different monastics talking about different suttas. If, you, if, you, if there's a sutta, you can just Google it and you'll have five or six monastics going over that sutta. Um, or even lay teachers too now. Um, 
So, you know, you can, you can do it that way. Now, in terms of books, if you're just starting out, I highly suggest In the Buddha's Words by Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's an um, anthology of various, you know, from all the different uh, Nikayas put together by topic, and then Bhikkhu Bodhi explains it, and it's really, he really handholds it. It's great. Like, it, you know, you, you can really understand a good, a good introduction to the suttas in that regard. My personal favorite is the Samyutta Nikaya. I just, uh, I, I think to me it has the most bang for your buck. It's like 2,000 pages and it's, it's, it's suspected to be the oldest of everything. Um, but the Majjhima Nikaya is considered the, the, basically the Bible of Buddhism. It's the middle length, you know, sayings. Um, and it's pretty easy. It's 152, I think, suttas. Um, so you can start there. As, you know, if you want to buy a book, you can do that too. I started talking, and there was a second question I wanted to. Oh yeah, understand the, the repetitions in the suttas. It's an oral tradition. It was for 500 years. So what you're, what you're reading is the oral tradition. The, the monks, talking about the recollection thing, the monks had this in their mind. You know, even like, I read this amazing book, it's called Moonwalking with Einstein. And it's this guy who spends a year with these people who, they're just professional memorizers. They'll memorize like the order of 52 decks of cards and all these kind of things. And in this book, he actually talks about the, the learning, like how humans learn. And before books and the printing presses and all that stuff, how people actually learned was memorizing it. And you had it in your head. You had that framework in your head. And you can go over it and learn it in your head. And then when you have you know, meditative experiences, you have the framework already with you in your head. So that's how the, you know, that's how the monastics lived. That's how they, they knew the suttas from in their mind. Um, and then it was written down in Sri Lanka, 500 years after the Buddha, because all the monks started dying out due to famine and war and all these kind of things. Um, and so that's when it was first written down. But that's why, it's an oral tradition. Um, other than the suttas, what is your favorite reading material on Buddhism and meditation? Honestly, I've never been much of a reader for like Buddhist, like lots of Buddhist books and all that kind of stuff. I've, I've probably never read 90% of the, the most well-known books. Um, basically the person whose books I've read the most is Bhante Ji. Um, and next probably Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Chah. But um, yeah, so th there's really, I guess those are the three. Bhante Ji, Ajahn Brahm, and Ajahn Chah for me. Um, I was mostly, I learned best by listening. And so, so for me, it's always been, you know, mostly just listening to Dhamma talks online. I just, that, that's how, you know, to be, visually and, and physically engaged in these kind of things and it, it's just how I learn best and so I've always preferred the, the Dhamma talks to reading. Uh, Bhante, do bhikkhus get to see their family once fully ordained? Yeah, um, you know, there's no rules against it. Um, there's no rules to, you know, how often or anything like that. Um, you know, sometimes like in Buddhist countries, like I know like 
Ajahn Chah, like his mother moved to the monastery, you know, like, so like in Buddhist countries, it's, you know, there's, they, they probably, you know, see their parents in that regard more than like in the West per se, because the, the people in, you know, in those countries are also Buddhist and they're going to come to the monastery and all that stuff. But um, yeah, there's no, you know, I mean, it's the way it's, the way it, it's been here has been just to make sure that you're not, you're, you're, as a monk, you're supposed to really have renounced family and lay life and all that kind of stuff. So if you're too attached to the family and you want to see them too much and all that kind of stuff, that's not, doesn't really bode well for your monasticism. Um, but there's nothing that says that you can't visit them. I think from what I gather, the average person who at least has a good relationship with their family is probably seeing them about once a year, somewhere around there. <laughs> I'm talking too slow. <laughs> it's a good question, though. Let me see. What is the best thing about being a monastic? What has been the most challenging aspect? Hmm. Let me see if I can do more practice-related stuff. It's more important. Um, how do monastics stage? <laughs> Uh, uh, how to avoid developing a negative pessimistic attitude towards life when practicing denutralizing sensual pleasures if I am enjoying the breeze through the trees should I think about deforestation or the barren desert how is one to be happy why not eat plain oatmeal all day every day I'm okay with oatmeal every day. It's fine. <laughs> now, um, see, this this is a very common thing in in Buddhism. It's this is kind of how it's viewed as a very negative, pessimistic thing. It's it's not. It's not that you know if you like you're enjoying the breeze. Okay, yeah, the the breeze is a pleasant feeling, for sure. Like you know, this afternoon with the sun, I I could have used a couple of breezes. It would have been nice. It would have been a pleasant feeling, right? But that's all it is. It's just, it's a pleasant feeling. It, you, it'll come, you'll have a pleasant feeling, and it'll go. The problem is that one of the, the, the main reasons why we do this, why we practice in this way to come to a more equanimous attitude is because what we normally do is attach to that, want it, and we cause ourselves our own suffering. So, you know, I'm, I'll be sitting up here and I'm in robes and it's hot and I'm like, okay, okay, it's fine. I could use a breeze. Okay, a breeze comes. Oh, that feels good. The breeze is gone. And then after that, I'm like, when's the next breeze? Come on, when's the next breeze, right? So, it, you're, and, and all, think of all the, the, the papancha, right? All of the propagate, all of the, the, the narrative that I'm going through in my head and all the suffering I'm creating myself because of that. So that's really what it is. It's, it's not that, you know, it, it's really understanding it for what it is and not attaching to it. That's really the, the main issue. Um, I don't know about thinking about deforestation and all those things. That's... Um, 
I think what, the, the happiness in Buddhism is, comes from, not from what we think of happiness as exciting, you know, oh, everything's going great. The happiness in Buddhism comes from equanimity, contentment, the being in any kind of situation and, and being okay with it. Because what, what's happening, when, you're, when you have that equanimity, it's just, you're not going on this roller coaster. You're not going on this zigzag. Hey, happy, bad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. That itself, that's like the greatest thing. I mean, just like when you can, and when you can be in that position where your mind is just straight, you're not being dragged around all over the place. So in Buddhism, that is what peace, happiness, and contentment is. So you just don't want to be, you know, don't let the breeze drag you all around. You know, you can, you can understand it's a pleasant feeling and understand it's it, how it has come, understand how it's going to go. Could you please explain better how to focus the mind on the quiet mind when the mind is agitated? Oh no, there's the, the, the focusing the mind... If the mind is ag agitated, you're not trying to denourish it by trying to find some kind of quiet mind right then and there. It's when your mind is quiet, you examine that, focus on that. And, and one of the main reasons is because you're going to see how peaceful it is and how nice it is that your mind is not going all over. You say, oh, okay, this is good. I want more of this. Now, of course, you don't want to attach to it because as soon as you attach to it, then anytime that you have all these anxieties, you're just you're suffering even more because you want that peaceful, happy mind. So that's what it is. It's, it's you know, instead, normally, like I was saying before, when we have a quiet mind, we're probably drifting off to sleep or something to that regard. We're not paying attention to it. So we want to, when we can see it, pay attention to it and see how, see the characteristics of it, see the, the gratification and the danger of it. Can I use a meditation word such as Budo instead of breath as focus and concentration? Should I mix the two? What is r the right mindfulness? What is the wrong mindfulness? Um, now, Budo, Budo I'm, not, I'm, almost, I'm just a little familiar with, with Budo. Um, what I'm, what I'm, what I understand about Budo is it's not necessarily a mantra, but it's pretty close to it. It's like Budo. So every time you breathe in, Budo. And there's different um, words, but um, what I know, how I know of some like, I remember Ajahn Chah talking about using that, but it's something that you use temporarily and then you let go of. So it's not supposed to be something that you use for you know your practice the whole time. It's supposed to be something that as a, a help in the beginning to help you calm down. Um, but honestly, that's not something we teach here. It's not really something that's in the suttas. So I'm probably not the best person to to talk at length about that. Um, right mindfulness is is seeing. The satipatthana, seeing your body, feelings, mind, seeing these dhammas, understanding them with clear comprehension, with sati, sati and sampajanya, 
mindfulness and clear comprehension. Seeing, as Bhante said, unbiased, undivided attention on these things. So that's right mindfulness. Wrong mindfulness is ayoni so manisakara. It's um, being mindful of things that are leading to your harm, to leading to your harm, not your benefit. Bhante is the fifth precept: black and white or shades of gray. Oh, somebody heard me at that meeting. <laughs> Will you please speak to the following substances? Marijuana, a glass of red wine, candy, caffeinated drinks, pain medication, psychedelics, medicine. Uh, it's all, okay, it's all. Um, so b basically, when we're talking about the fifth precept, it's Surya, Surya, Medya, Majha, Pamadatana. And so basically, Surya, Medya, it, it's translated as, um, as an alcoholic drink. Majha, Pamadatana is actually intoxicants. So it covers everything. Everything that's going to make you heedless, it covers. So it, it will cover marijuana and all these kind of things, drugs, alcohol, all of that. Now, the difference is that this is for, if you want to think of it in a drug perspective, if you are dying of ALS or cancer or something like that and you have the medical marijuana and all that, that's okay. It's medicine. Opiates. If you have, you know, uh, Oxycontin because you have pain, it's okay. It's medicine. If you're popping Oxycontin, you know, when, before you go to the club or something like that, that's what we're talking about, <laughs> you know, breaking that, that precept. Um, so it's really, it depends on, you know, the, the use. You know, if, if medicine is medicine, that's allowed. Um, but if you're doing it like, well, I guess what the word would be, what's the word, recreational? If you're doing it basically just to, to what, is it, what was that old 60s thing, tune in and drop out? If that's your reason, then yeah, it's, it's breaking the fifth precept. Um, you know, is it black and white? You have to see for yourself. You know, I mean, I, I would say you, you don't want to bother with any of that stuff. Um, but, you know, some people feel like, oh, well, you know, I have a glass of wine at, at uh, you know, uh, dinner and it's not I'm not really getting drunk or anything like that. You know, nobody's going to, you know, there's nobody that's going to be behind you cracking the whip saying you shouldn't drink anything at all. Um, I think it's just one of those things where as y you see the, the danger of it, you just don't want to do it anymore. I mean, I guess it was fairly easy for me when I, when I, almost 10 years ago, when I took the precepts for the first time, I was, what was I? I was a good, probably seven or eight years out of college. I know I stopped, I did all my drinking in college. So, you know, after college, I think I had a margarita once every year or something like that. So for me, it was easy. It was other people, not so easy. After achieving the first jhana, yeah, that's not a question I can answer, sorry. Uh, actually, yeah, I guess technically, well, well, I can answer it from, from what I know. Um, and I think also Bhante G or Bhante Sila said this, that do you have to go through, if you achieve the first jhana and then the second jhana, do you have to go through the first one again when you're out? Yeah, you, you go through, um, you, you go through them all in succession.
Dear Bhante, you have described jhana as a step on the path to nibbana. I don't know if this is for me. <laughs> I don't know if this is me, Bhante, but uh, what benefits of, does jhana have to have for everyday life other than forms of meditation? Mm. Yeah, I shouldn't answer that. I'll put this aside and leave it in there for Bhante G tomorrow. Bhante J. Oh, this is for me. I'm just curious, what happened to your car after you finished the last install payment and became a monk? Um, actually, I had it. I brought it here. I had it until I became a Samanera, and I wanted to sell it. I just gave it to my, my dad, and I said, just sell it to keep the money for my nephew. Whatever. I, don't, I don't need it. I don't care for it or anything. Um, but then, you know, then he's like, oh, I don't want to sell it. It's too much work. And it just kind of worked out that uh, a friend of mine, actually my last ex-girlfriend, who's still a friend of mine, um, she had just had a car accident. And, you know, I said, take it. Just, I don't need it. Just take it, you know. So that's what happened to my car. As, as, as If it's still around or not, I don't know. I haven't actually spoken to her in a, probably a year and a half or so. So, but yeah, that's what happened to my car. That last car payment, that was, I actually... The problem, I knew I wanted to become a monk four years before I did it, but I had to, you know, shut down everything. And, and so I set three years before I, I came here, I set the date for my last car payment that I was going to come here. And actually, I was only a couple months off, so it worked out pretty well. Um, Bhante, it feels bored now to develop metta before meditation. What do I do? How to get the mind inclined towards feeling metta again easily. You could, you know, and any time that this happens to me, I, just, I try something else. It's bringing up that, that investigation, right? So metta doesn't work for you before, you know? Try it. You know, when I teach metta, actually, I, the way I teach is I, I bring everybody into mindfulness of breathing first, and then after like 10, 15 minutes, I do metta. And, you know, sometimes that can actually make it, once you've actually calmed, you know, even though metta is a samatha practice, or can be, it, it can be helpful that if you've already kind of gotten into a calm state to practice metta. Um, or even, don't even, you know, if, if doing it during your meditation, practice metta in action. If you're going for a walk, wave to people. You know, practice, do, do, do things like you can... Um, what we do is we use like the word sukihotu, which means may you be happy. And like we can you just be driving past people or whatever, just sukihotu, may you be happy. So try, try to, instead of seeing it as a, a rote thing that you do while you're sitting down, practice it when you're doing everything in your daily life. You know, opening the door for somebody, you know, metta. Before you talk to somebody, give them metta. You know, all these kind of things. Practice metta um, in ways that, you know, you won't be too bored. And also you can try, try different words, try different visuals. You know, the, the way I was initially taught metta is, is nowhere near the way I actually teach metta. Because I teach the way I have developed and how, what's worked for me. Um, and each teacher will have their different way of teaching metta. So... Um, you know, that's, metta is something that you can really make your own and, you know, practice, investigate, see what works and see what doesn't.
Bhante, we saw you do a lot of walking meditation. Can one practice jhana or satipatthana during the walking meditation? Jhana, that's debated. Um, some people say yes, some people say no. Uh, I think I've heard Bhante Ji say no before, but the last time that was asked, I heard him say maybe in the first jhana, but not in the second or the third. So, I mean, so there's the best answer I can give you in that regard. Um, <clears throat> in terms of walking meditation, walking meditation changed my life, literally. Walking meditation is one of the main reasons I'm here. As a matter of fact, I have much gratitude for the monk. His name is Bhante Dhammajiva. He's a um, Sri Lankan monk who I met actually at, uh, at a retreat, my first retreat. And um, he taught walking meditation. I had never heard of it before. I, maybe I heard of it, but I never had learned it. I didn't know what, much about what it was. And that retreat, I started doing it. And it's just, you know, in the beginning, I was like, okay, I'm just going to do walking meditation. I even found out that there's monks that became awakened from doing walking meditation. And, I'm, and I'm, in the beginning, I'm like, I don't need to do sitting meditation at all. I'm just going to do walking. So like, that's how much I loved walking and how much it affected me and how much, how much it, it just changed my first insights. The first time that my mind went quiet for more than a couple seconds, all of all my all of major insights and everything happened to me while I was doing walking meditation. So I highly suggest it. I always teach it, and I think it's something that should be a part of everybody's practice. I think it's something that's very undertaught and undervalued, um, and uh, you know, I I can't say, you know, I can't say enough good about it. Um, now, lately, I, I will say that I have been doing less of it because I've been trying to develop my, my sitting meditation more. It's just kind of something that's naturally occurred. But in doing that, my body has started to reject sitting longer as well. So I'm walking a lot this retreat because it hurts to sit, um, mostly in my, my knee and my hip, you know, this area. Um, it doesn't bother me now because I'm talking, so I'm distracted. But. <laughs> So, yeah. Which is also why I use the, the bench. Bench is a really good thing. Uh, I noticed that Bhante Uttaratana is listed as vice abbot. Does he reside at Bhante? Oh, Uttaratana. Um, no, he, he doesn't. He doesn't reside here. Um, Bhante Uttaratana is... One of Bhanteji's first students. He's been in America since the 70s. He's the um, head of Wheaton Temple. It's, um, I th is it Maryland? Maryland Buddhist Vihara? I think it's Maryland Buddhist Vihara. So he's, um, I call him Bhante Santa Claus because I love him. He's, he's, he's one of the few people that I've been around that I can just feel metta emanating from him. It's, it's, I, I like the guy a lot. Um, and it basically, what, what, why he's the vice abbot is because, um, you know, we're doing a lot of planning for, you know, Bhanteji is going to be 90 in December. So hopefully we have him to 100, but you never know. So we're trying to plan to what we're, how Bhavana is going to be, um, you know, when that happens, when Bhanteji leaves us and things have to change. That's why he's, you know, f that's why... I'm teaching at a jhana retreat, something that we tried not to have. <laughs> you know, myself and the other young monks were like, we're no, we can do other retreats, but we're not going to do the jhana retreat. Yeah, that's up. He told me the first day of the retreat, 
you're doing two talks during this year. Oh, okay. So yeah, you can tell he's trying to have everybody. He's trying to have everybody know and and get used to you know learning from and and meeting other teachers and stuff like that. And of course, giving us the experience, trial by fire and all that. But yeah, so Bhante Uparatana, he's not going to live here. He's a busy guy. I mean, he's doing, you know, he's part of governmental things, working with the government and, and, and all kinds of stuff. He's so, but yeah, he's basically the, the vice abbot in, in that regard. So, but no, he's never going to come live here and take over uh, Bhavana. Um, Bhante, should one absolutely not take the eight precepts if one is not celibate? How do other teachers interpret the brahmacharya in the eighth precept? Um, the eight precepts are supposed to be for like when you're at a monastery. So I hope you're celibate while you're here. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the eight lifetime precepts, there's no celibacy, um, you know, issue. Um, so... Yeah, the eight precepts is, is, are for somebody who actually wants to be celibate. Most people do not follow the full, the, the eight opposite or monastic precepts while they're out in the world. I tried to do it myself for a time, and even knowing I wanted to become a monk, and it just, the eight precepts are really, really tough to follow in, in, in the world. Um, so yeah, but the eight lifetime precepts don't have that in there. Can one still feel his breathing when in fourth jhana? Uh, yeah, that's the short answer that I know of is is no, but I'm not qualified to answer that. I'll save that for Bhantiji. Bhante J, what is your daily activity practice here at Bhavana? Oh, since we're at eight and we have just non-dhamma stuff, I'll finish these up real quick. Uh, do you have to sit meditating for a number of hours a day? Um, okay, so basically there's three periods of meditation. Um, the first thing we do, first thing every morning is five o'clock meditation. I wake up at four because I like to shower and kind of, you know, do things and, and be active before I go into meditation. And some people Roll a bet, roll out of bed at 4:55 and come in and meditate. It's just so. So there's no like wake up bell. There's no like you have to wake up at a certain time. But everybody's supposed to be meditating at five. Um, <clears throat> at six o'clock we do our morning puja. We chant in Pali in the morning. Um, then we have like a thought of the day. The monastics take turns giving like a little dhamma talk. We go over the weather and who's coming and if people are leaving. We thank them and you know these kind of things. Um, and then. Seven o'clock, we have our meal. Um, between seven, well, 8.30, we have a work meeting. <clears throat> 8.30 to 10.30, we do work. Or whatever it is, you guys have been, you know, all of what you've doing, we do, um, you know, on a regular basis. Um, and whoever comes to visit that we can, you know, get to work. There's not that many of us, even when there is a full uh, amount of, you know, residents. Right now, there's one resident. It's just Arash. Um, and we're down, you know, a monk as well, because Bhante Panya has gone to, uh, to Sri Lanka. So we, there's a lot of work, and, you know, we do what we can. So, you know, that period, we're, we're always working, always doing something. Then lunch at 11. 
basically between 11 and, and 6.30, or um, 12 and 6.30, it's pretty much free time. Um, you know, that, uh, that, that period is where I get in like the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, like studying Pali and reading the suttas and, and, and actually I'm learning Spanish too. So I'm trying to do a couple of different things. So like that period of time is the time that I try to get everything in. Um, there's a meditation period between four and six. Um, you know, it's basically like, it's not mandatory. It's just people come in and, and out. I usually meditate at three. Because um, I just find it's better for me for me to meditate in that regard, and then at 6:30 we come in here, we do the same puja as we did in the morning, but in English. Then we have final meditation. So the the only two mandatory meditations are in the morning and in, at night. Um, uh, does Bhantaji have training classes for monks daily? Actually, no. Um, Bhantaji is basically we have to, we study on our own. We practice on our own. We learn on our own. There's no like official classes or anything like that. Bhanteji is always there if we, you know, if we need, if we have questions, you know, he's, um, you know, he's uh, always kind of guiding. He, you know, my instructions from Bhanteji is we were walking one time and he said, there's four things that are rare in a monk. The first one is that they practice and they know Dhamma. The second thing is, is that they can write. The third thing is, is that they can read, or no, that they can speak. You know, so, you know, yeah, it's um, practice, know Dhamma, speak, and, and um, write. So those are the four things. So I basically said, okay, well, that's my guide. That's what I, that's, that's how, that's what I'm going to follow now. Can I read? Uh, can I write? Can I speak? Am I actually practicing so I can know Dhamma? And do I know the suttas? So that's my guideline. And of course, if I have any questions or anything I need, you know, we have weekly interviews with Bhante and stuff like that. And if I need to, I can always go knock on his door. But he's not like taskmastering us and over us at all, you know, all the time. We, we have to generate our own desire and effort to, to practice. Um, and to learn in these kind of things. Okay, how do monastics stay in shape? Can they exercise, ride bikes? Um, ride bikes, no. Because it looks really silly with a monk with the robes <laughs> riding. That, actually, Bhante Sila, when he would talk to me when, when I first came here and I was trying to just get as much information out of him as I could, and he's like, there are things we ought to understand that they might not be in the vinya, but a monk should not do. And he says, one of those is riding a bike. <laughs> and so like you see like, you know, I mean, you can imagine like, you know, a monk, like the robes and everything and all that. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the main exercise is walking. Bhante G still to this day does four miles a day. He walks four miles a day. Um, you know, he goes out a couple hours and he, he actually went out this afternoon. So walking is the major thing we do, walking on the road, walking on, on the circle that we have. Um, you know, walking is the main thing. I do a little, um, I do, you know, stretching. I, w I wouldn't necessarily say I do yoga because I don't have a routine. I used to do yoga, but mostly I'm doing a lot of stretching now. Um, and uh, I do a little bit, I used to practice Kung Fu and there's some meditative ex aspects, meditative techniques um, and Kung Fu. So I practice that as well. 
Um, but no, I'm not like jumping around and flipping and doing all those kind of things as a monk. That's you know, not something that's, uh, that's dignified. That's the main thing is make sure that you're dignified. But yeah, I mean, there's, and of course, you know, if you need it for your health, like, um, you know, I've seen monks, they have like, you know, dumbbells to, you know, lift weights and things like that. So, um, and I know monasteries that have, um, like, I think a Bayagiri out in California, they have like a little weight room. So yeah, I mean, you can do that, but you know, we're not going to CrossFit and, and running, you know, running in uh, marathons and all that kind of stuff, no. What is the best thing about being a monastic? What has been the most challenging aspect? Being a monastic has been the most challenging aspect. <laughs> Just the, you know, I didn't, I thought I knew a lot about letting go before I, I came to live in a monastery, but I knew very little about letting go until I came to a monastery. It's, it's yeah. Um, the best thing about it is, for me, I'm doing something that I feel is worth it and it's something that I want to do and that I love. That, that's really it, it, is it for me. I mean, I, you know, I, I got a lot out of doing what I did before, you know, like working with kids and, and doing all that kind of stuff. I felt, you know, I was fairly fulfilled, but I had the suspicion that I was gonna be much more fulfilled doing this. And so far I am. I mean, this is, I, I don't, you know, 10 years from now, I might disrobe and do something else. I don't know. But right now, there's no place I'd rather be and nothing I'd rather do. I mean, and now I'm starting to go out to like New York and different places and give, you know, little retreats and stuff like that and being out with, with you know, and going to like colleges and talk to people who aren't even Buddhists and they want to learn about Buddhists. Like even that, that has been, I've learned a lot. My, my, my practice and my knowledge has skyrocketed just in, in doing that and being here. You know, it's, it'll be almost two years since I've started, you know, giving talks here at Bhavana too. So all of that has, you know, my own practice and also being with you guys and being with everybody and, and all of that, the, I've never done anything more rewarding. You know, so. But I'm only 39, so I might find something else. I don't know, but I don't think so. <clears throat> okay, last question. Uh, you may be better to address this question issue because elder venerables who are ordained uh, as boys did not have the opportunity to get their minds filled. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, with entertainments, TV, music, movies, etc., um, the hindrances of restlessness often arises as unbidden unwilled memories of movies, TV, etc. I suppose that's why monastics are directed to abstain from such frivolous shows. Yeah, I mean, like, I'll be, my favorite show, TV show, was this show called Futurama. Most of you probably don't know what that is. Um, but, like, I'll be, like, online, and I'll be on Facebook or whatever, or on YouTube, and then, like, something like that will pop up, and it'll be like, oh, I'm not gonna click on it, I don't wanna see it, I don't wanna have anything to do, you know, like, because I know, like, there's, there's hours of that in my head. And so as soon as I'm reminded of it, the next couple of days, it's all in my head and it's coming out. <clears throat> like, I'll, I'll be like, when I first came here, it was, you know, like, just a, like a broken record in my head, all kinds of music and songs and even stuff like, it was just funny because it was stuff that I never liked like, I, I remember, like, I, I was here a month. All of a sudden, in my head for three days was Mbop by Hanson. And I'm like, oh, my God, why is this here? I don't I never liked this song. And even if you're not trying to like it and listen to it, it's just so much 
in the culture that it's just in your head. And, and honestly, I don't know if it ever goes away. I mean, I, you know, uh, I think it's just being away from it, kind of like the out of sight, out of mind thing is, is much better. Like there's times in the beginning when I was here when it was totally dead silent. There was no animals, no trees, no nothing. And it was just total silence. Even my mind was silent. It was great. And all of a sudden, it, it was like, almost kind of like if you were hearing maybe somebody up the hill was playing music and you, kind, you heard music, but it was just so little, right? That was, and I, I thought initially, some, who's playing music? What's going on? I realized it's my own mind. Like my mind is like so averse to total silence that it actually is starting to play music. Um, and even like I'll, I'll notice, right? If I'm in a certain mood, there's a song that comes to my head related to that mood, right? If it, it's, and that's just something that I built up over, you know, we, we all do this. We build this up over years and years and years and it becomes a habit. It's that papancha, it's that propagating it. Um, and so really the only thing that uh, in terms of, you know, what I do is I try to just not, you know, this is why to avoid these things so that it doesn't come up, but you guys can't do that. So like what I'm trying to do is there, there's, a, um, there's another sutta that's called removal of distracting thoughts. And the first one is replace. So what I do now is like, I'll, I'll be around and I'll hear I'll hear Bonte Sila, and, well, not Bonte G, but Bonte Sila. I'll hear Bonte Sila sing sometimes. And he'll do the same thing that I do, right? But what is he doing? What's, what's going on in his mind? Suttas. He's doing it in Pali. He's doing, you know, Buddhas. So it's the same mental thing, but it's a heck of a lot more skillful than Hansen. Yeah? <laughs> so, so if something comes into my head, like, um, you know, if something like, comes into my head, I'll, and, I, and I'm mindful of it. I'll start with Karaniya Karaniya Atasuk. Oh my God, I'm messing it up. So I'll just remember whatever Pali I can remember, whatever things that I can remember, Buddhist stuff, I'll just try to replace it with that. Because if it's in my head, at least it's something that it's going to be helpful to me as I'm doing it. So, you know, th this is. It's meditation time, not movie time. If it comes up in, if it comes up in your mind in meditation, you just, you just be aware of it. You know, it's like all the thoughts and stuff that are coming up in your mind. I've gone over time. So I'm going to end this real quick. Um, all this stuff that's coming up in your mind, right? What I do is I acknowledge it's there. It's there. You don't try to be averse to it. You can't push it away because it'll just come back stronger. You acknowledge that it's there. You don't want to, have aversion to it, but you also don't want to be attached to it, right? You can, you can be there. Uh, sometimes now in my meditation, I'll be like this, and all of a sudden, all kinds of like, almost like a, like a story is playing, like a visual, like a story, like, you know, people are doing things, and I'm like this, and I'm just focused on my breath, just focusing, and I can see these things happening, and I acknowledge them, but I don't attach, I can practice not attaching to them. I can just let them go as they came. And so every time I acknowledge that something's there, I, I make sure I'm not being averse to it. I make sure I'm not attaching to it. I come back to my breath. And so the more you do that, the more the things might still come up, 
but at the very least, they're not distracting you away from, from your object of meditation. But like I was saying about the, the, the sexual thing, this is part of your culture. You've been enculturated in this way. It's in you. It will probably be in you till the day you die. The, the important thing is to not let it be a distraction to your meditation. Understanding what it is, why it's there, and how you can work with it so that you can move past it. So, okay, I've gone past the time I set myself to do, but at least I got the last one in. Um, so we'll take a break and uh, come back. Now remember, tomorrow, Bhante G. Um, so 2 o'clock Dhamma Talk, 5 o'clock Q&A. And uh, I'll save these questions for Bhante. soon as I went to kneel.